This week, we talked to someone who has spent 167 days in space with over 38 hours performing spacewalks, author of The Ordinary Spaceman and host of a new podcast called The Making of an Ordinary Spaceman, Clayton C. Anderson. Plus, we'll talk all about Wally Funk and billionaire space flights in a week that's full of exciting spaceflight news. Please don't forget to get in touch with your thoughts on our discussions. We're at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. There's also a contact form on our website, which is spaceandthingspodcast.com. And please check out our Patreon page too, patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, please enjoy episode 45 of the Space and Things Podcast. Listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 45. So, Emily, I've got a couple of things I want to mention before we get started. There have been two new posts on your This Space Available blog since we last spoke about it, and I've absolutely loved them. Thank you. Thank you very much. They're both part of the 70s Spaceflight series, right? Yes, it's part of Space in the 70s, uh, celebrating the least exciting decade. <laughs> no, to me, it's exciting. But to most people, they're like, nothing happened. What? And I'm like, oh, no, a lot of things happened, actually. Uh, yes, they did. So I will post links in the show notes to those blogs. But there was one about the bicentennial. Is that how you say it? The bicentennial. Yeah, there was That's an it. event during the bicentennial year in uh, 1976 and I, w- I was not around for it quite yet i had a, about a 18 more months yeah there was an event at uh, kennedy space center called third century america and it was like a bicentennial exposition and the really cool thing about that event was that it uh, allowed uh, people to have access for the first time to the vab they got to tour the vab the firing room um and they got to see the uh, the crawlers and they got to see some of the rockets there which I think that was the first time that was allowed. People got to see some of the Apollo hardware, which was really cool if you were like a space nerd at the time. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of neat. And uh, I I need to give a huge shout out to JL Pickering, who runs an awesome uh, website and he sells discs that are amazing. It's called Retro Space Images. I think the website is retrospaceimages.com. But uh, he supplied a lot of the pictures. Actually, you supplied all the pictures for that uh, article. They're incredible. They're Kodachrome, so the colors are just as vivid as they were the day the pictures were taken. So the photos really make that whole piece. And I uh, I wrote a second piece, too, about a an astronaut a lot of people haven't heard of. Yeah, it's another great read. This guy just seemed to get put on the backup crew all the time. Yes. It looked like he was always going to be the bridesmaid and never the bride, but he got there in the end. Yeah, he did. It's about uh, Vance Brand, who's a really nice guy. I've actually uh, talked to him before, and he's really cool. He's really laid back. He's kind of reserved, but he's he's a really nice guy. To me, the funniest part of the piece was about Apollo 15 because he's like, well, it became apparent that, you know, Al Warden wasn't going to break anything or get sick. So <laughs> I didn't have much of a chance of making it on that. And there was um, an excellent gag gift a few years back that Al Warden played on Vance because they were really good friends. And he uh, gave him an autographed picture of Vance looking. There's a meme called Sad Vance. <laughs> Don't ask. And um, he gave a picture of Sad Vance that was autographed. Too bad for you. Cheers, Al Warden. And it was basically <laughs> the picture had like it, um, you know, meme on it. Like Al Warden didn't break his ankle, so I didn't go to the moon. And uh, Vance loved it. Uh, he he was really amused by it. So it was it was pretty funny. So nice. And and talking of nice, I do believe you're off to Space Fest next week. And I've just seen the announcement of the panel you're hosting. Whoa. Yes, I'm really, really excited. I have a lot of friends who are not going this year, which like you, because uh, they're overseas and they can't travel internationally yet, which really sucks because I really uh, am going to miss a lot of people this year. So I hope everybody can make it next year. But uh, yeah, I am doing or moderating a panel it's a uh, 40 years of shuttle panel, and it's going to have some awesome astronauts on it. It's going to have Jack Lausma. It's going to have Mike Mullane, Kathy Sullivan, Nicole Stott, and our today's guest, 
this panel should be awesome. I, I, I really wanted to pick people who um, span the entire program because Jack, of course, was in the early part of the program, whereas Mullane and Sullivan were, you know, sort of early middle and Stott and Anderson were sort of near the end of the program. So I wanted to get people from like every yeah. phase, you know? Good coverage. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Absolutely. Right, let's crack on. we got so much to do today. Let's crack on. Okay, we're off to a good start, Blade. Cool. And one of the astronauts who will be on my Space Fest panel has very kindly agreed to join us today, Clayton C. Anderson. Yep. Born in February 1959, Clayton grew up in Ashland, Nebraska. He studied physics at Hastings College, Nebraska, and received a master's degree in aerospace engineering at Iowa State University in 1983. He then started working for NASA at the Mission Planning and Analysis Division, working various jobs in NASA before reaching the peak of Chief of Flight Design Branch in 1993. Throughout all of that, he was applying to be an astronaut and was finally selected to be a mission specialist in 1998. He got his first flight to space in 2007, flying to the International Space Station on the Space Shuttle Atlantis with the STS-117 crew. He spent 152 days on the station and performed three spacewalks before returning home on the Space Shuttle Discovery as part of the STS-120 crew. In 2010, he went back to space as part of the STS-131 crew on the Space Shuttle Discovery. It was a 15-day resupply mission to the International Space Station, and he managed to get another three spacewalks logged. He retired from NASA in January 2013 to pursue some other interests. Clayton released his book, The Ordinary Spaceman, From Boyhood Dreams to Astronaut, in June 2015. And this year, he started his own podcast, The Making of an Ordinary Astronaut. So we asked if he'd like to come and talk to us, and he agreed. So Dave, run the tape. Hello, Clayton. Thanks so much for joining us today. I've been really enjoying the new podcast. Uh, and after episode two, I had to look up where Ashland, Nebraska was. Everybody has to look it up. <laughs> A population of just 2,453 in 2010. Uh, but apparently still plenty of things to do, including an air and space museum. So I must have missed that one when I was over. Uh, but you're also the only astronaut to have come out of Nebraska, or Nebraska nought, as you say it. Uh, so why do you think that is? Well, after this podcast episode, you'll probably know, just like <laughs> everybody else in Nebraska and NASA, why they don't ever want to pick another one of us again. But, you know, it's I'm proud to be the first and the only for a while uh, I think it's time for them to broaden their horizons a little bit. I've found in my 30 years at NASA, 15 as an engineer, 15 as an astronaut, especially during the astronaut time, that astronauts like to select people that are like them. Right. The ones from MIT like to select more MITs, and the Caltechs select more Caltechs, and the Purdue's and the Embry-Riddles want to select more of those people. Well, <laughs> I'm the only one from Nebraska and Iowa State, and I was never ever in 15 years on the astronaut selection committee. So that ought to tell you something. <laughs> yeah, that, that does explain it. Um, do you think that small town life helped you in your astronaut career? Absolutely. Small town life, in my opinion, makes the opportunity for you to be involved in many, many things, interesting, unique things that maybe kids in a large city can't do. But that involvement I think makes for better citizens. I think that we we need more well-rounded kids in the world today. We need more kids that do that play the violin, that are in student government, that play sports, that uh, are good at academics. The tendency in America, anyway, to focus your kids to do one thing or something, I, I think, is detrimental to what we or what I think we need to be headed toward. Yeah, you mentioned that within the podcast. You named your three favorite teachers, and none of them were a science teacher, which actually really surprised me. There was a, a couple of theater and, and music teachers, I think. Yeah, it was music for me, art, arts. So I'm a big STEAM guy, right? You know, NASA throws out STEM, and I just want to smack the crap out of them and say, put an A in there, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Because if you go paint a picture... Uh, you know, we know Nicole Stott is a, a famous astronaut who paints, right? And Alan Bean and, and those guys, painting is chemistry in its simplest form. And 
playing an instrument like a trombone or a piano or a guitar is physics in its simplest form. Hmm. Arts are a hook for little kids, right? If you want to hook a kid and get him or her to do better academically, uh, I've always told teachers and educators whenever I speak to them is find that hook. Hey, Jimmy, man, I heard you had a great basketball game on Saturday. You scored like 10 points. That's awesome. Or Betty, man, I went to your Christmas concert and that was you playing the clarinet. Oh my God, it was amazing, right? Those are the hooks that a lot of kids don't have today. Mm. And when you look at especially underprivileged kids, a lot of them are into music and a lot of them are into athletics because that's their ticket somewhere, right? So I think arts is really important. So taking art and, and PE out of curriculums and schools is to me ludicrous. Yeah, absolutely. You famously applied to be an astronaut, I think, 16 times before you were actually accepted to the astronaut corps. Uh, there's a lesson in there about never taking no for an answer. Any other pointers or advice you have for those who are maybe endeavoring to go into aerospace or the space sciences field? Well, I was selected on my 15th try, so I failed miserably 14 times. Although, truth in advertising, they didn't pick astronauts every one of those years but you still had to submit your application for approval. So I claim uh, those 14 rejections with pride. Um, some people would say that was perseverance. Uh, others would say stupidity. <laughs> but as I tell everyone, applying to be an astronaut is easy. Getting selected to be an astronaut is hard. Unless, of course, these days you have billions of dollars of cash. Then <laughs> it's a lot simpler um, to become a cash astronaut. Nice. Oh, wow. So it wasn't difficult to apply. Um, and then the trick was, I guess, was to do something unique over time that would help add to my resume. You know, when I became an astronaut and I hung out with these people that were incredibly smart and incredibly talented, all I could think of was how the hell did I get here? <laughs> Those are some amazing uh, and accomplished people. So for me to even be in that group, I lowered the class average, I'm sure. <laughs> I think it's important that uh, people keep the understanding that just being passionate about something isn't enough. For example, if you're passionate about being a singer on America's Got Talent and you can't carry a tune in a bucket, that passion's not going to get you very far. Mm. So. I always like Mike Rowe when he talks about you have to bring your passion with you. But to me, you have to have the skill set available. You have to make the skill set that will get you to the point you want to go. So if it's aerospace engineer, if it's astronaut, if it's doctor, if you don't have that skill set, all the passion in the world isn't going to help you. And sometimes you can build that skill set, not always. Um, you know, if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, Nobody can teach you that skill set. So uh, those are important aspects of this perseverance of a pursuit. Uh, I dreamed of being an astronaut not my entire life. You know, I was comfortable with the fact that I may never become one. Uh, some of my colleagues, they plan their whole life around being an astronaut, their entire life. Wow. I'm going to get this degree and then I'm going to work two years here and then I'm going to go here to this school and I'm going to get another degree and the degree will be in this and not in that. And then I'm going to go jump out of an airplane and I'm going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And, 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 and if that all works, I'll go to Everest. And, and ah. So what happens if you fail? What happens if you don't reach that pinnacle? You know, you have to be able to deal with not achieving that dream, but you have to know what your bucket, your skill set bucket is such that you can pursue other alternatives along the way. So even though my path was dreaming to be an astronaut, I was very, very comfortable being an engineer working at NASA. So uh, it, the fact that I got selected was amazing. I'm, I'm proud. I'm honored. I can't believe it. But I would have been pretty happy continuing along the path, the non-astronaut path, uh, with NASA at the Johnson Space Center because my skill set worked in both places. So 
While we're talking about applications, um, one of our Patreons, uh, Todd Oliver, asked if you still hold or if you do hold the record for the amount of applications uh, and also asked, did you ever think after 20, I'll stop? Did you have did you have a, a point <laughs> where you were like, oh, I think I'll stop then? Well, yes, I think I hold the record, although my caveat earlier that they didn't select every year. But, you know, I was pretty diligent and I think I've been commented, videoed, recorded, written about of having that record. So I'm going to claim it, by God. <laughs> um, I did think about quitting, and I wrote about this in my memoir, The Ordinary Spaceman from Boyhood Dreams to Astronaut. I thought about quitting uh, around year 13, between year 12 and 13. So I had applied in 12, um, and I'm pretty sure I had applied in 13. I'm not quite sure the time exactly, but we my wife and I had flown to Seattle, Washington to meet with a dear friend from high school who was a big dude in the Bill Gates uh, world. He was the guy that came up with the idea for Microsoft Office, if you can imagine that, right? So I went to him and we spent some time together and the idea was kind of feel out the Seattle area for you know possible job opportunities, which kind of crashed and burned. But I came back to Houston and right after I arrived back in Houston, within the next few weeks, I got the phone call uh, for the first time someone asked if I could come for an interview. Oh, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yes, I can be there. Um, so that trip to Seattle was kind of, I don't know how it all worked out, but that was lighting my flame again when I got that phone call. Man, I was I didn't give a rat's patootie about Seattle anymore, man. I was full steam ahead. I wanted to be an astronaut again. So would I have done it for 20 more or five more years, 20 years, 21 years, 25 years? Uh, I don't know. Eventually, age would have become a factor. With that in mind and how long you waited and the excitement of getting the interview, do you mind sharing the story here about when you got the call to say, come and join the ranks? My wife and I, Susan, were in Florida and she had won an award and part of that award trophy or whatever, was a trip to a real launch at the Cape. It turns out that that launch was the last uh, shuttle Mir mission in history. And she and I got to go and we had been to the big party at the uh, cruise launch terminal there. And all that night, people were coming up to us and they were saying weird stuff that we didn't understand. Like, hey, Clay, it's okay to smile. What? <laughs> Or, hey, are you going to be around? When are you going back to Houston? Uh, everything everything looking good for you? You know, uh, we're looking at each other going, what the hell's going on? But then the next day, it became pretty obvious because we were uh, looking for manatees. We had some time to kill before we had to drive back to Orlando to the airport. So what do you do? Well, you'll go look for manatees. <laughs> so we went to the Canaveral Lock Station, which was a little area someone had told us to go because that's where you'll see a manatee. And... I had a pager. At the time, I was the, the director of the Emergency Operations Center at NASA Johnson. So I worried about hurricanes, bomb threats, fires, medical emergencies. That was all my purview. And so I had a pager and the pager went off. Well, back then, for the young kids listening on the <laughs> podcast, there were no cell phones. There were none of that fancy stuff. We just had a pager. And the number was 321 something, 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 something. Didn't mean anything to me, right? The naive kid from Nebraska had no clue that 321 might be the area for the Kennedy Space Center area, right? So then the next problem was we didn't have a phone. So my pager goes off and no phone and I'm freaking thinking, oh my God, if this is an emergency at Johnson, I better get on it. So we had to find a phone and we looked to the uh, little shack that was at the Canaveral lock station and we sneaked over and we peeked through the glass trying to see if anyone was in there. And then we finally decided, well, we don't see anybody. We better open the door and see if it's unlocked. And it was. And we went in and found a phone, a rotary dial, black telephone with the six buttons at the bottom. And we hit one of the buttons and we tried to figure out if eight was the number to dial out. And I called this number. And when the phone was answered, what I heard was astronaut crew quarters. And, and that still didn't mean anything to me, really. And I said, yeah, hey, this is Clayton Anderson. I got paged by this number. Uh, I think you want my wife, Susan. She works in the shuttle phase one mirror program. 
and she's way more important than me. Uh, stand by. Someone will be with you in a moment while we're looking at each other. And, and Sue's listening, of course. And she looks at me and I look at her. And, and then all of a sudden it clicked. And I said, I think I know what this is. Well, she starts to cry. And the next thing I hear is, Clayton, this is David Leesma. How you doing? And Dave Leesma was the king of all the astronauts, right? So if you get a call from the king, you're in. <laughs> if you get a call from one of the other people, you're out. So uh, I'm trying to act as professional as possible in the middle of this little shack and worrying about somebody coming in to arrest me and maybe <laughs> seeing you on talking to Dave Leesma. And he says, hey, are you still interested in being a long duration mission specialist candidate? Long duration mission special. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so then it all came down and, and I, I started to shake a little bit and Sue was bawling her brains out. And, you know, he hung up the phone. It's a very short call. Right. And he said, I'll see you in Houston. And I hung up. And the next thing we did, we burst from this little building. We, we wanted to yell out, I'm an astronaut. I'm an astronaut. Well, there was no one around. <laughs> no manatees even. So it's like, what do we do now? Well, we hopped in the car. And we hauled booty toward Orlando because we wanted to call our family. And we got into the airport and checked in and there was a bank of payphones, right? So we're on these payphones and I called my mom and she wasn't available. I called my sister. She wasn't there. My brother wasn't there. No one was there until I called my uh, father-in-law. And uh, when my father had passed away years before and when my father-in-law answered the phone, I gave him the news and he started to cry. And uh, that was probably the best response that I could have ever gotten when I learned I was a new astronaut. Wow. Fantastic. Okay, I'm about to start to cry now. Oh, what my goodness. What a story. What a story. That's a wonderful story. So you did talk in your podcast about how your faith and how your family got has gotten you through adversity, um, mm -hmm. such as what happened, you know, involving the Columbia uh, accident. Now... As an outsider looking into that, I, I can't imagine enduring that a, as a colleague of somebody. Did you have any trepidation about continuing as an astronaut? And what made you continue, you know, flying? That's a good question, Emily. Um, and I got asked that a lot right around the post-Columbia time frame. Um, my faith, I'm pretty quiet about my faith. Uh, you know, I don't go around beating the bushes and yelling at everybody to, you know, do what I do, but uh, I'm a pretty strong Christian man and have been for my whole life. And I needed it more than I ever could have imagined that single day. And since then, but that single day at the Cape, I'm not sure I knew what to do. Um, but because of that faith, uh, I kind of knew what direction to head in. Did Columbia change my mind? Not at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think it made my quest to fly in space even stronger simply because we owed those colleagues of ours the answers. We owed their family. And I, I don't know that we ever really gave their family all that they needed. And I, I, I live with that guilt all the time that I didn't do enough. But that idea was what kept me moving forward. I wanted to be the best astronaut I could be for them. You know, I don't, nobody ever talks about this, but I'll tell you what, that crew of Rick Husband, Willie McCool, Dave Brown, uh, Laurel Clark, Elon Ramon, uh, Mike Anderson, uh, who's the one I'm missing? Kalpana? Uh, yeah, KC, KC Chavez. Sorry, KC. That crew was the future of the astronaut office to me. They were leaders. They were fair. They had the right stuff. Um, not that some of the leaders I dealt with weren't, the, weren't, but they weren't. I don't think they would have been what these guys could have been. And I looked up to every single one of those people. Uh, I didn't look up to every astronaut in the Corps when I went through uh, for various reasons, but. Uh, it, it's so sad that they were all taken away from us in that single instant because I saw them as the future of the office, really. And uh, the fact that I had the honor 
to serve with them and their families. I'll forever be grateful. Um, but it wasn't without my faith. Uh, you know, I don't know how that day would have gone. And I, I don't think I'd have been an escort. I think that Rick Husband, who is a man of faith, I think somehow he knew that I was a man of faith because that's why he asked me to be a family escort. Uh, you know, he and I never got a chance to talk about, well, why'd you pick me? Um, but I'll tell you what, I'm sure glad he did. So we're going to go to the lighter questions now. So you do participate uh, in question and answers, which I love on Quora. Uh, some are really funny, such as uh, what's the most retouched picture of a celebrity you've ever seen? Um, <laughs> I win that one, didn't I? I won <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you did. Um, so what's your favorite question you've received? It could be serious or not serious. To be honest, there one just happened yesterday where somebody asks some question. It's about you're an astronaut and you go to Mars in the year 2025 and you go into a cave and you see writing on the, on the inside wall of the cave. What does it say? <laughs> and I quit. Oh, that was an easy one. I answered that in like 10 seconds. And, I, and my answer was, do you know Astro Clay? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when I, I love Quora. I wish I got paid to write all those answers because I've written thousands. But I love Quora because I can share. And what I do typically in a day is when I wake up in the morning is my social media time for the most part. And I look through these websites and I look through Quora nowadays and I quickly get rid of all those questions that I don't, that don't have anything to do with me or with space because I look for questions that I can answer because I have experience or I have anecdotal experience about the situation or the question. But I'm now looking more for those silly, stupid ones that people ask that are just so ridiculously, dude, you just put a question on the internet. Do you know how to Google stuff? And, and so I'll be a smart ass. I love to be a smart ass. And, but the smart ass questions typically involve a, a cool photo or something that I post. And I, I just love the responses that I get. I love the fact that my answers are being translated into German, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, all around the world. Um, you know, my second book is based on my first couple of years of Quora answers, and people seem to love it. Uh, I'm honest. I try to be humorous, but I'm always honest, and I will tell it like it is. I don't sugarcoat anything <laughs> to my detriment sometimes. Oh, I know that feeling. Actually, talking of people who don't sugarcoat things. Now, this next question is from one of our patrons, Todd Oliver, who whenever we post on Facebook our new episode, he goes through and listens and then posts the most incredible memes. And he doesn't hold back. He doesn't hold back. But I, we love him for it. We absolutely love him for it. Anyway, he says, there are astronauts and then there are astronauts who have done an EVA. So how was that experience? You, you kind of have to categorize it a little differently too. On the US side, in the shuttle program, there are astronauts who flew the shuttle <laughs> and astronauts like me who couldn't, right? So if you couldn't fly the shuttle, to me, the next best thing was doing a spacewalk, an EVA, extravehicular activity. Um, the cool thing was, as a mission specialist, I got to fly the robotic arm, which is what uh, the other cool thing. So you can drive the shuttle. You can run the arm or you can do a spacewalk. And I got to do two of the three of those things. And doing a spacewalk to me was the ultimate. You, you cannot imagine being in that spacesuit and leaving the hatch and going outside to play. When I went out the first time, it was pitch black. The sun was behind the earth. You couldn't see squat. I'm floating there in a 300-pound spacesuit with one hand holding the handrail as I look into a three-foot circle at dark. And it was the darkest dark I'd ever seen. And all I could see were icicles from the back of my spacesuit. So my sublimator, my air conditioner, creates a, a film of ice. And 
the pressure difference, the small, tiny pressure that was remaining in the airlock was pushing those icicles into the vacuum space. And you could see it and they disappear. And it was the coolest thing. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I was born to be here right now doing this. And I was born to spacewalk, I think. Was I the best? No, I was pretty good at it. That is like one of my life's like fantasies is to do a, like a spacewalk or something. But it was mine too. <laughs> <laughs> mine three. Uh, anyway, that has triggered a question in my head. You've now mentioned a few times that it was your dream to become an astronaut, right? Right. Is it weird that you actually did it? How many times <laughs> do you have to stop and pinch yourself about it and say, I did it? Like when you put on your astronaut jacket, do you still feel cool or have you got past that now? Does it ever get old being introduced to someone and hearing, this is Clayton, he's an astronaut? It never gets old. Uh, You know, my moniker these days, I have a few, Astro Clay, uh, the Oracle of Outer Space is one of my favorites since I'm from the Omaha area and the Oracle of Omaha is Warren Buffett, but uh, the one I cherish the most is the ordinary spaceman. And, and I chose that moniker, well, because uh, a very dear friend of mine suggested it as the title for my memoir. You know, we were fighting through the the title thing where they didn't like any of my titles that I gave to them. And uh, Nevada Barr, who's a mystery writer and a New York Times bestseller 23 times or 24 times or something crazy, uh, wrote the foreword to my memoir, and she coached me as a writer. And uh, I remember I got an email one morning, and and we were fighting. And she always told me the title of your of her books was always the one she hated the least. That's how she had to select her titles. So I get an email from her one morning, and and Sue and I are talking, and we're looking at this email, and and she says, "Hey, I was just eating, drinking coffee, and having a donut." And I came up with a few titles for your book. And the very first one was The Ordinary Spaceman. And I loved it. Sue and I looked at each other and said, that's it. And because I am ordinary, I am the kid from the Midwest. I am that kid from small town America that was nothing special, that worked hard, uh, had a good upbringing, um, was exposed to many things. but. I have no PhD. I wasn't a jet jockey. I didn't, you know, fly helicopters to rescue soldiers in the middle of Afghanistan. I was just a kid. I, I worked on the farm and I tried to be the best person that I could be. And so for me to be an astronaut, to have become an astronaut, I wear that so proudly because there are thousands of kids just like me who can do great things if they believe they're just like me. And so to tell folks that I am the ordinary spaceman, I'm nothing special. I got lucky along the way. I had some good timing. Yeah, were my grades okay? Yeah, they were okay. I did all right in school. I wasn't a genius, but I had a dream. I persevered. I figured out that I didn't have to be a genius. And I'm true to who I am. If kids around America will do those four things, have a dream, persevere, understand you don't have to be a genius and be true to who you are, they're going to succeed and they're going to make their lives better. They're going to make other people's lives better and thereby make America in the world better. And so that's why I, I cling to that ideal that I am the ordinary spaceman. I'm nothing special. You know, did I achieve some cool stuff? Yeah. (laughs) But I had a lot of help along the way. It wasn't just me ever. Um, And that's why my podcast is called The Making of an Ordinary Spaceman, because I want to share these type of stories with the people to help them believe in themselves. Mm. You have to believe in yourself before anyone else will ever believe in you. Fantastic advice there. And uh, I can't praise the podcast enough, actually. Uh, I've been loving learning and hearing from the people who, who knew you before you were an astronaut, and that's reinforcing everything you were just saying. But anyway, as you said, you've got the podcast and you've had a few books, but l- lots of great stuff. Are there any other projects that we can also look forward to from you? 
you know, I released my second children's book, Letters from Space, this past September <laughs> in the midst of a COVID pandemic, right? So <laughs> uh, my ability to travel around the United States and places uh, to, to sell the book or to, to show people the book were limited. But uh, for those who are fans of Astro Clay, I have my third children's book coming out uh, in 2022. Currently, the title, the working title is my title, so that means it won't be the book's title, but it's <laughs> you want to be an astronaut. The The premise of the book is it's a, a poetry book like A is for Astronaut was, and uh, it deals with uh, character traits that kids need to have as well as astronauts. So trust, courage, uh, taking care of your stuff, um, I'm very excited for it. Uh, some who've read the manuscript script say it might be my best one ever. <laughs> I don't need that kind of pressure. <laughs> but I'm excited. So uh, you're scheduled to be at Space Fest and about uh, starts a little over a week from now. So what are you looking forward to there? Well, first thing I'm looking forward to is my wife's going to attend with me for the first time. Awesome. She's coming. Nice. Um, and she's unique to that environment of crazy people like Emily. <laughs> I look forward to, 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 to seeing fans there. You know, the first time I went, I autographed my books and, and whatever ever else people shove in front of me, which is just amazing <laughs> that they pay all that money to come there and shove it in front of me and pay me to sign it. But, you know, I'll take it. But the, the cool thing is, is some of the people I met, uh, I remember I, I've met a young girl. She was probably... 10 or 11, maybe. And she spoke Russian. And uh, I remember sitting there in my booth and just shooting the breeze with this girl in Russian. It was the most fun. And, you know, her parents were watching and it, it's just cool. Stuff like that's cool. And the ability to share my stories, which I think they're pretty good. Um, but I also go back to that ordinary spaceman mantra that, you know, kids need to know that they can be like me. They don't, they don't have to be this crazy genius who gets 37 degrees and has to fly a jet pilot for 2,700 hours and all that stuff. <laughs> the right stuff is changing. Nice, yeah, it is. And which, which actually brings us on to the final question, which you kind oh, of mentioned earlier as well. With all the with all the space billionaires and the and the astronauts uh, <laughs> around, if if one of them called you up and said, uh, "Clay, we want you to pilot." Our next flight, would you do it? Well, my next question would be, how much are you going to pay me? <laughs> um, Not a bad question. That's yeah. pretty smart. No, I would be like, I need money, man. <laughs> well, it's. I would definitely consider it. I've said publicly in my posts and my tweets that you know I'm here. You know how to find me if you <laughs> want me. You know, I was a uh, spacewalk instructor, astronaut, and could I pilot these crafts? No, but you don't have to pilot them anymore, right? Mm. Elon Musk has automatic piloting and, and all that good stuff. But, you know, I say it with uh, a little bit of frivolity, fr frivolity in, in that uh, some of these folks are going to need babysitting. You know, they, they don't necessarily understand what it's like to go to space. I lived in space with a space flight participant or in the old days, a space tourist. And uh, a great person, but he, he didn't really understand, I don't think, where he was and what was going on. But I, I helped him out. We had a great time, and he had a great experience. But the more of these folks you send uh, into this extremely hazardous, dangerous environment, the statistical basis says that something's going to go wrong. Mm. And it's how you deal with something going wrong with these people, right? We all get on airplanes and none of us, well, I'll say none of us, listen to the flight attendant when she, he or she tells us that we, you know, need to know where the exits are, that we need to, here's how you buckle your seatbelt. And, you know, here's what you do with the oxygen mask. It comes down, you put it over your nose and mouth, you put the strap around, and then you don't worry about a kid until you have yours on, right? And what happened when, uh, they had a crisis in one of the flights. They found out people were putting it and they weren't putting it over their mouth and their nose and they didn't know what to do and they freak out. Most people want 
Where's my bag? I got to get my laptop computer bag. And they're jumping up out of their seat, right? They're freaking out. Even though they've been trained about how they're supposed to behave in a bad situation. And that's a fear I have with all this stuff, right? Mm. You can you can put these people on a on a tropical island and teach them how to fly in Virgin Galactic, you know, space flight, whatever it is. And they'll nod and they'll do well. And but when the poop hits the fan, that's when you find out what's gonna really happen. And I think they need veterans like me, maybe that they can hire that can go along with some of these guys. I mean. It's, it's a different world up there. And, you know, astronauts, I trained for nine years before I ever got to fly. And I didn't train continually. I get that. But I trained over and over on, on certain things. And that nine years of experience helped me be successful in space. You know, three months, three weeks, whatever they're getting to get on these rockets as castronauts. By the way, I'd like to coin that phrase, but I learned <laughs> It's on the Urban Dictionary as a person who's an entrepreneur and makes a lot of money. But I think in the space race, I should get credit for coining, bringing that term into the space travel race. But, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's different. And these folks, just, just from off the street, whether they're millionaires or not, do you want to fly with that person? Do you know enough about that person that you want to fly with them? Um, you know, the Inspiration4 crew, I think that's a great idea, but <laughs> that's four people that have never been to space together. If everything goes right, it'll be fine. But that day that something doesn't go right, that's that's what I'm concerned about. It's cool that you mentioned that. It's interesting because I think Mike Mullane wrote a, an editorial recently, or he did a blog post, I think on his website, that had similar sentiments where he was like, wait a minute. Think about Orville and Wilbur in 1903. And as, as airplane travel increased, right, people, more and more people began to fly in airplanes. And a lot of them died. A lot of them crashed and died. But, but you didn't hear about it back then because there was no social media and internet. Now, if something happens bad, everybody's going to know about it instantaneously. Yeah, you're going to be watching it live. Yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah. then the people are going to speculate. And then all the, you know, I'm glad that Mike Mullane has thoughts similar to mine. That makes me feel good because he's a pretty sharp dude. Yeah, his his general point was: Do the people know the risks? Are they aware of the right. risks? Because if you do and you're willingly putting yourself into it, then okay, that's fine. But if you're getting on board thinking it's hundred percent safe, well, well, it's not, and it's right. never going to be hundred yeah. percent safe. And you've had people like yourself have been trained for years to not panic in situations and. How will people that haven't had those that training react? That's what we don't know. Well, I, I think the only time I really panicked was the first time I used the waste collection system on the space <laughs> That was a moment of worthy worthy of panic because I didn't want to make a mistake. You know, I didn't, be, didn't want to be the guy that had a baby Ruth come flying across. You know, the cabin. Made a mistake that, that would have not been good. You didn't want to pull a Apollo ten. I think there's a transcript of like. <laughs> Uh, he who smelt it, dealt it type transcript. <laughs> Moving swiftly on, just one last thing, Hayden. With <laughs> with all this, uh, with all these new um, space tourists going into space and potentially that whole world being opened up, on the whole, are you supportive of everyone going to space and experiencing that? Or do you think it would devalue what you achieved as an astronaut and your role in spaceflight? Is there a little bit of ego there? Yeah, yes. I think overall I'm supportive of commercial space flight. I think that if every human on the planet had a chance to go see the Earth from space for an hour and then go live in a third world country for a month, it would change everyone's perspectives enough that, that the Earth would be a better place. Now, the, the part I have issue with, and I'm being truthful, and I think there might be other astronauts who feel the same way that just don't say it, but it's the use of the term astronaut. That, that kind of bugs me. You know, I spent my whole life working and aiming and trying to become a United States astronaut. I went through the trials and tribulations. You know, I studied the right things. I tried to do the right things. And I eventually got selected and proved that I was worthy of that selection. But the use of the term is what's getting me, gets in my craw a little bit, right? That you went up and you went high enough, but you were only there for five minutes and you didn't go around the earth once. And, and now you got astronaut in your resume. 
you know, I, uh, if I get on a 747 and I sit in my chair and buckle my seatbelt, I'm I'm not a 747 pilot by any stretch of the imagination. But I guess if you can pay enough and go high enough, you can become an astronaut. And um, that that kind of bugs me a little bit. And maybe I'm petty. If that's what people say, you're petty. Well, okay. But if you read my memoir and you read about the day. I put on my flight suit for the first time. And I stood in that room by myself next to a picnic table at Ellington Field, looking in a full length mirror and just staring at me in that blue flight suit with a leather name tag that had my name on it. And I was an astronaut and I hadn't done anything. Um, it was a a surreal moment for me. It was an emotional moment for me. It was, it's indescribable. And, you know, I didn't pay, get on a stairway and hop in and get strapped in, you know? Uh, so my personal feelings, nobody's going to call up Clay and say, Clay, what are your personal <laughs> feelings? I'd like you to weigh in on this. Cause you're so important. That ain't ever going to happen. So, uh, I'll learn to live with it and and I'll be proud of the fact that uh you know I went to space for 167 days I performed six spacewalks I flew the Canadian robotic arm and and I took my own blood and I did science and you know I built helped build the station those are things I I take pride in uh the only regret I've ever had is I was never named a commander of anything and uh, one of my talks is uh never a commander but always a leader and so my mantra as a human was to, yeah, okay, you're not going to put that commander nickname on my resume. I can live with that. But I want everybody to know that when the time came, I was a pretty damn good leader. And I would make sure that I did the right thing. And I think that's a really good place to end. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for giving up your time for us and, uh, and talking to us. This has been amazing. I'll uh, shake your hand one day, Dave. And uh, Emily, you owe me a hug in Tucson. And Absolutely, uh, yeah. Absolutely. I'll see you in a little over a week. Wow. I look forward to our paths crossing again. Thank you. Thank you, Clay. Thank you. You're listening to the Space and Things podcast with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. Matt, I thought I that was him. Go on, I'm sorry. Yeah, you go, 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 you start, you start. <laughs> I thought that was really amazing. Oh my god, I was really touched at uh, how open he was when he uh, teared up a bit. I, I admit, I kind of almost lost it too. I was not expecting that. You don't, you don't always see that from people. So that was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was quite the moment, and people listening may not have known that that actually happened. But uh, as he was sharing his story about how he found out about becoming an astronaut he did get quite emotional and I also really appreciated his honesty at the end there when he was talking about the private space flights. I don't want to crap on anyone's parade because, you know, I am glad I have a few friends of mine who are going to be, you know, flying in space this year and I'm, I'm thrilled for them. This was, you know, this was a dream of theirs, but, um, you know, I, I do see Clay's point, you know, um, and, and Mullane's point. We did talk about Mike Mullane's, uh, piece just because, you know, you, you just hope that, People are thoroughly aware of the risks. You know, I talk about the Navy. I know that my Navy experience is nothing like being an astronaut because I was not exposed to vacuum <laughs> in any way. But I just think about, you know, people think, oh, it sounds beautiful going through the Suez Canal. And I'm like, it's nice, but I worked next to a reactor. I mean, it was shielded. Yeah. But that's really where I worked right next to a nuclear reactor. So you know, just marinate on that a bit. It was kind of, you know, there were some dangers there. So not everybody's aware of that. So you just hope that people are fully aware of, okay, this is a, there's a lot of risk involved in this. So I do see his point. Definitely. Yeah, me too. And we'll talk more about that in a bit when we reach the news stories. Uh, but I do urge all of our listeners to check out the new podcast, the making of an ordinary astronaut. And what he does differently is that he brings in people from before he was an astronaut, his wife, his high school friends, his teachers, and he's so real to them. And and while he was just very real to us and very honest, we're still, we're still talking to him, knowing him as the astronaut, Clayton Anderson, whereas 
to to them, that's what he became, and it's a completely different dynamic from what what we see elsewhere of other podcasts or, or the perspective that we have. Uh, and it's definitely a welcome addition. So I'll be putting the link in the show notes as well as links to Clay's social media profiles. But I also urge you to check out our Patreon page. We were talking to him for about an hour and he was so animated and, and really got both of us going too. So it's worth checking out the full interview in video form if that interests you. Plus, we have loads of other goodies over there at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But let's get on with the news and sports. Okay, there have been four launches this week, one in Russia and three in China. Now, I would love to talk about them, but we're already 50 minutes in with loads still to talk about. So between them, they released some communications and weather satellites. And if you want to know more information, the videos and full details of these launches will be in the show notes, which are available on your podcast provider or on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com. Anyway, Emily, give us some news. Last Thursday was one of those crazy days of announcements. And it's something we wanted to focus upon because we've been building to this moment within the news stories over the last few months. But it really is getting rather exciting and scary, depending on your point of view. On the morning of Thursday, July 1st, an Instagram post was made by Blue Origin of a video of founder Jeff Bezos telling 82-year-old pilot Wally Funk that she would be joining him on the first suborbital crewed launch on July 20th. Uh, Bezos is the uh, billionaire, not millionaire, billionaire, uh, founder of Blue Origin, and he made his money setting up Amazon.com. He is a keen space historian and a big fan of Gerard K. O'Neill's uh, uh, High Frontier <laughs> 2. Uh, he announced a few weeks ago that he and his brother would take two of the four seats on board uh, that flight. And there was an auction for the third seat, which raised $28 million for Blue Origin's nonprofit outreach program. And now Wally has been given the fourth seat. So I want to give you a little bit of background because this is such a big story and I'm sure you, you've probably seen about this already. I'll be surprised if you haven't. So here's a little bit of background about uh, Blue Origin. So the, the New Shepard rocket, which will transport them on July 20th, is named after Alan Shepard, the first American in space whose first flight was a suborbital one. Now, the rocket has two different parts. It has the propulsion module and the crew module, and both of these are fully reusable, with a propulsion module taken off and landing, much like you see the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket do. Actually, they achieved the feat of landing the rocket vertically before SpaceX did on the 23rd of November 2015. Uh, SpaceX achieved that for the first time on December the 21st, 2015. So although there are obviously some big differences as the Falcon 9 is an orbital class rocket. But Blue Origin won the highly respected Collier Trophy for achieving that feat. And, and that's an annual aviation award given by the National Aeronautic Association. And the list of winners of that is really quite something. Um, so I'll stick a link in the description about that as well, because it's worth looking into. But this will be the 16th launch of that rocket. And they've, they've all actually been successful, apart from the very first one, which the propulsion module crashed on on its first landing in April 2015. But the crew module did land safely by parachute. So it's got a pretty good record, this rocket. The company announced in June 2018 that they would start flying with passengers by the end of that year. But they decided to keep testing and trying to improve the passenger experience. And now it seems they're ready to fly on July 20th. And we're ridiculously excited about the announcement of Wally Funk joining the crew, uh, then becoming the oldest person in space, uh, beating John Glenn's record of being 77, which he set in 1998. Uh, Wally was of the Mercury 13 group, uh, a group of American women who successfully went through the same physiological screening test as the original Mercury 7 astronauts in the late 1950s. Uh, this was a privately funded program uh, through the Lovelace Clinic, but the fact that they passed caused many to start lobbying Congress to have women included in the astronaut program. In fact, there was a hearing in the House in July 1962 in which John Glenn, Scott Carpenter, and George Lau all testified. John Glenn said, quote, The fact that women are not in this field is a fact of our social order, quote. 
While the group never flew in space, they had to wait until 1978 before any American women were selected to join the astronaut corps. And it wasn't until 1983 when Sally Ride became the first American woman in space on STS-7, which was Challenger. In 1995, Eileen Collins became the first woman to pilot a space shuttle on STS-63 and the first woman to command a space shuttle mission in 1999 on STS-93. Seven of the surviving Mercury 13 were invited by Collins to watch her first launch at the Cape, and she flew mementos for almost all of them. Uh, this story is told in a wonderful documentary called The Mercury 13, which I believe is on Netflix. But finally, one of the 13 is going to space. That is awesome. Oh, my God. Yeah, it really is. I'm really glad you read out that John Glenn quote because, man, that's that's pretty grim stuff. But there's a wonderful thing happening where she's beating his one of his records. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, it re- really is quite something, that quote. But... I suppose you have to take it in context. It was 1962. And I'd like to think that as he got older, he changed his tune on that. But this is a wonderful story. I have all of the big rocket companies on Twitter alert. So I got a notification saying Blorigin has just announced something. And I clicked on it and straight away sent it to Emily. I think I had an expletive in the text because I was that excited. <laughs> Yeah, I think there was, but my reaction was the same. I was like, what? Like, at first I saw that and I'm like, am I reading this wrong? Like, honestly, I thought I was like, maybe I'm seeing this. And then I went to the Twitter and I was like, oh, my God. Like, I was I was flipping out. I don't think I've been this happy for any. But I mean, I I have friends who are going to space. I've I've known. God, I sound like such a windbag right now. (laughs) I've you know, I've known actual astronauts who've gone to space who, uh, you know, I've known a little bit and you're like yeah you're always happy for you are happy for them you know because i can't do that but it's cool to vicariously live through their experience you know which is which is amazing but i honestly was like doing i thought i was going to do backflips when i heard about this because i know how long she's wanted to do this i mean 60 years that's a long time i could have done backflips it was incredible i was so i'm so happy for her that she gets to be able to do this finally. Yeah, she has the most incredible story. And the best thing is, it's not over yet. There's still a great chapter to come. I can't wait to see it. But now, I know that Jeff Bezos gets a bit of stick. And as someone who's had to drive for Amazon over this last year when music's been shut down, I have my own issues with him. But when it comes to spaceflight, I really do feel like he's one of us. You know, he's a fan. He, he respects the history and, and and knows that this is the kind of thing he needs to do to get the space world on side of him. I agree. It's a, it's a bit of a masterstroke of PR in many ways. Although I do also feel like he's doing it because it's a great thing to do. But before this, I was interested in this launch as f- from from an academic point of view. But now I'm emotionally invested. So well played, Jeff, on that one. And and I'm definitely going to be tuning in on July 20th. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be uh, watching that. Uh, I, I think I, yeah, I get home, I think, on the 19th. So, yeah, on the 20th, I think I'm going to be back at work, but I'm going to be on my phone, you know, <laughs> yeah. streaming it. Definitely. I'm going to, oh, my God, I'm. I'm just, I, I, I uh, oh God, I'll shut up. I'm like getting too happy for her. Like, I'm honestly just over the moon for her. Yeah, it might only be a few minutes in space, but, uh, you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure she's going to enjoy every single second. Hey, I, I would take, I would take a minute. <laughs> I'll yeah. t- I don't even care. I don't want to be called an astronaut. I'll take a minute in space. I just would take, just to, you know, say, yeah, I experienced that just for a little bit. So last Thursday, after that announcement, we got another one. So this time it was Virgin Galactic's turn with a video announcing <laughs> that they would be sending the first fully crewed flight of the VSS Unity, including taking Richard Branson and doing so on July 11th, which is this Sunday. If you're listening to this the week the podcast comes out, that's this Sunday, meaning that he will beat Jeff Bezos into space. <sighs> The path to get here for Branson (laughs) has been really long. He founded this company in 2004, and it's rather complicated as to who owns what and all that kind of stuff. But essentially, uh, they funded the development of Spaceship Two, which was what 
came after Spaceship One, which was the first crewed private space vehicle when it flew three suborbital flights in 2004. And Spaceship One is now in the Air and Space Museum in Washington. That was carried up to around 14 kilometers by a plane called White Knight. And then it was released and it starts its own rocket and it reached space. A space plane, much like the X-15, which was in the early 60s, the Neil Armstrong famously flew, and if you've seen First Man, you would have seen that in the opening scenes. Anyway, Virgin Galactic were developing Spaceship Two and White Knight Two, and that's where we are now. However, they had a catastrophic accident with the first version of this plane, the VSS Enterprise, which broke apart in mid-air uh, in, in a test flight in October 2014, killing the co-pilot, Michael Alsbury, and leaving pilot, Peter Siebold, seriously injured. Now, the VSS Enterprise never actually made it to space, but its replacement ship, the VSS Unity, eventually did make it to space in December 2018. And it's been flown twice more. And as we reported last week, they got their license to carry commercial passengers from the Federal Aviation Administration just recently. So this next flight will have a crew of six. Pilot Dave McKay, who is on his third flight. Co-pilot Michael Mazzucci for his second flight. Rookie Sarisha Bandla, who is going to be testing the researcher experience. Another rookie, Colin Bennett, who will be evaluating cabin procedures. And Beth Moses, who is on her second flight, and she's the cabin lead and test director. And Richard Branson, who will be evaluating the customer experience. And since these announcements have been made, we've seen a number of different people commenting with different points of view about billionaires going to space. And indeed, you heard us talk about this with Clay and and Emily and I have carried on this conversation. And what frustrates me about this is the way that Virgin Galactic are doing this so quickly in order for Branson to be able to say he's the first billionaire in space. The announcement video introduced the five other crew members and then there was this big reveal of him walking out of the shadows. (laughs) It was really rather cheesy and cringe. And it, it just looked like an ego trip. And sure, he's always been a bit of an explorer with his hot air balloon stuff that he used to do. And he's been talking about being on the first flight of Virgin Galactic for years. But the issue of him doing it this way is it enables people who don't care much for spaceflight to come on and and have a pop at it and say, this is just billionaires going to space battling for who has got the biggest rocket or whatever. Which actually then downplays the value that these kind of flights have. Mm Mm-hmm where the advancement in technology and opening up space to more people and more science can have a huge impact on the Earth. And while at least Jeff is trying to take it away from being about him and his own ambition, Richard has put himself front and centre. However, interestingly, and I wonder if this was added late in the day after the Blue Origin announcement, at the end of the Virgin Galactic announcement video, Branson said, and this will be my best Branson impersonation, And when we return, I will announce something very exciting to give more people a chance to become astronauts because space does belong to all of us. So he's lowering the price to like, you know, five million or something? I don't know. I, I mean, I, what does that mean? Is he going to do a raffle or, or like, have they just had a realization that they've got their PR wrong on this? Who knows? But I'm now more interested in what that announcement's going to be than I am about the flight, which I wasn't that excited about at all. And I still am not. I'm excited about what the announcement might be. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Uh, because uh, I'm probably one of the suckers who will definitely, if they if they allow regular people to apply for this, I'm pr- I'll probably be like, Shit, whatever. I'll yeah. <laughs> apply for it because I'm a sucker. So I'd probably apply for it. Oh, no, and, absolutely. I would too. And I, I definitely would because, uh, you know, I, I just want a minute of zero G. What kind of research could I do? I don't know. Taco research, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. On a really serious note, I, I do agree with you. I think it became more about, you know, the announcement and Branson having to sort of, I don't, I don't, there's not, the what I want to say is not for a family show, <laughs> you know? More like Branson trying to wave his, you know, yeah, stick it, around, sort yeah. of like, okay, I'm going first. And it's like, I don't know if they, I mean, obviously they probably couldn't say it if they felt this way because they'd probably lose their flight or something. But I wonder how other people who are flying Virgin Galactic for research purposes, like um, I have a friend of mine, Kelly Girardi, who's flying as a, I believe, a, a payload specialist on a flight 
probably this year. But she's doing like, you know, actual science aboard it. I'm super excited for her, you know, and I'm sure. And I think she's been very magnanimous on social media about it, you know, and very excited for the crew and stuff like that. But it's like, I just feel like it takes away almost like his showboating almost takes away from everybody else who's wanting to fly scientific missions, which are really important. So that that's just how I feel. I agree with you. I think it's like, OK, can you just chill with your ego here, you know, just for a minute? I know that's his thing, but still, I, I don't know. Yeah, the thing is, his behavior just has just encouraged the discussion to be about billionaires and how they have enough money to save the world, but instead all they're doing is racing to get to space. But in truth, we need people like Kelly Girardi, who isn't just doing science, but she's a great communicator, inspires so many young people to get into science. And we need her to be going to space to maximize her impact because the children she inspires are going to become the scientists that will save the world. And the technology that's derived from these space missions will also help save the world so uh, and sure it would be great if the billionaires could spend more money on other projects on the ground as well but money spent on space at the moment doesn't just get burnt in space it's spent on the ground it's spent for jobs and for lots of things on the ground anyway right now the world should be learning about wally funk but instead they're having their noses put out of joint by this billionaire space race and all this talk of billionaires and that is frustrating anyway talking to billionaires not to be left behind, Elon Musk did make an announcement on Thursday. Uh, <laughs> well, it wasn't really an announcement, but it, it was more a case of he posted a photo uh, on, on his Twitter account of the super heavy booster being rolled out uh, to the launch pad at Boca Chica in Texas. Now, this is the booster uh, that the Starship is going to go on, go on top of to go to the moon and Mars. And um, Now, this particular booster won't be going to space. Um, it's just doing ground tests. But without a doubt, he posted this on Thursday to remind everyone, and again, it's that billionaire bull poop, <laughs> um, it, that he's, he's trying to remind everyone that while his peers are doing suborbital flights, he's preparing a rocket to take humans to deep space missions. And again, it's like, did he need to do that on that day? He clearly did. He, I reckon that was a photo from a two two days before, and he just was like, oh. And it wasn't even that big of a deal. It was just that little reminder, and for the SpaceX fanboys to go to be able to have that same thing again. Oh, Jeff, Jeff doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, they're all doing something, all right. Just be happy that space is going on. That, that actually we've got stuff yeah. to talk about, and it's interesting. But that that's just another thing, isn't it? Anyway. I wish- I wish Twitter had existed in the 1960s so like astronauts could have just had it out on Twitter and like like <laughs> hey sucker I'm going on Apollo 10 man I'm going to the moon and then Apollo 11 be like we're landing on the moon yeah. you you guys are you guys are wusses like they just going at it on Twitter over that that would have been awesome and Deke just not doing anything you know yeah. about it Deke Slayton just letting this happen All right. oh my god could you imagine that Could would you be imagine? amazing. 60s Twitter. All right. Elsewhere, away from the billionaires, uh, the Chinese Taikonauts on board their brand new space station completed a spacewalk over the weekend. It was just the second spacewalk in the history of the Chinese space program with Liu Boming and Tang Hongbo heading outside for nearly seven hours. And on Mars, finally, we'll get to the end of this, the Ingenuity helicopter had its ninth flight and it was its most ambitious flight yet. On the 4th of July, it flew for 166.4 seconds, 27 seconds longer than its previous record and reached a speed of 5 metres per second, 1 metre per second faster than it's been flying since its sixth flight. And that should get you up to date. And from every window, we have a really spectacular view of the Earth, and as well as the, uh, what surprised me, the real, real blackness of space. I don't think I've ever seen black as it is out here. So that's it for this week. I know it's been a very full show, a wonderful interview, lots to talk about. Hopefully, something you'll want to share with your friends. Uh, so please do continue to do that for us. It means a hell of a lot. We'll be back next week to talk about Liberty Bell 7. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.